Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I am Tane Kell. Tane, with all that's going on in Georgia right now, you know, one of our listeners, our loyal listeners, suggested that we record an episode on criminal trials with multiple defendants. Hmm. That's weird. Going on? Uh, is something going on in Georgia's courts that has brought us to the world's attention? Wade, I'm unaware. Yeah, just a, a little trial with just a few defendants. Oh, cool. Well, uh, yeah, anyway, our, our listener was motivated by consideration of all the issues normally associated with a multi-defendant trial and, you know, asked if we could record an episode on that subject, which seemed like a great idea. So here's our disclaimer. We are not directing any of our comments to anything we have heard about the so-called Trump trial or I, any of the issues that might arise in that case in this episode. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Now, while that may have been what motivated our, one of our listeners to ask about it, um, you know, we're not addressing that trial. Instead, we are addressing any multi-defendant criminal trial and the unique issues posed in those types of trials. I have presided in cases involving seven defendants and six defendants, respectively, multiple two and three defendant cases. What about you, Tane? Yeah, I've had some gang cases and some other cases that involve, you know, multiple defendants simultaneously. So we have some experience to bring to bear on that subject. You can find these episode notes on our webpage, goodjudgepod.com. And folks, if you yourself have episode topics that you would like to request, please reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com and lay them on us. Now, wait, with all that being said, let's talk about multi-defendant criminal trials. Let's do that. So criminal trials with multiple defendants, you know, Tane, they have all the typical issues that arise in any other criminal single defendant sort of trial, you know? Yeah, but, you know, there are some additional issues that do not apply in single defendant trials that arise with some frequency in a multi-defendant criminal trial. You know, Tane, there was a point in time in Georgia law where every defendant charged received a separate trial. Can you imagine? Yeah, that... That blows my mind, really, to think about how many trials we would be having, because I had a case that had, uh, I think it was 27 criminal defendants in it. So uh, they would each have had 27 separate criminal trials. Now, Wade, that old practice ended somewhere around 1971 or 1972. Um Back when I was in, what was I in? Third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, something like but that. But you know, it's still the law in death penalty cases. Each defendant has a separate trial. So just a reminder, this episode and this this mini series, let's call it a mini series. Mini cool. series, yeah. This mini series will just have well, it has no bearing on a death penalty case. We're not talking about a death penalty case. Just from this point forward, unless we say it applies in a death penalty case, nothing applies in a death penalty case. How about that? <laughs> that's because, even better. Because death is different, right, Wade? That's right. That's what the Supremes say. That's what they always say. If facing a multi multiple defendant criminal trial, the first place you need to look and you need to break out the old book and break the spine on the thing is OCGA 17-8-4. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. I love it when angels get their wings. So Wade, subsection A of that statute deals with severance and joint trials. And then what about subsection B? Subsection B deals with peremptory strikes in a multi-defendant trial. So given that the statute starts with severance, let's start there. Let's also start there, Tane. 
Excellent. And, you know, obviously severance is not an issue that comes up in a single defendant case. And so that's why it's particular to this series we're doing now. First, it is the discretion of the trial judge whether to sever the trial of any one or more co-defendants from the trial of any other co-defendants. There's no obligation to do so, but it's it's completely discretionary. Now, the judge can do it on his own motion, his or her own motion. Sua sponte, we like to call it. Or it could do it like, I don't know, if if, if one defendant were to, exa- for example, request a speedy trial demand. Yeah. Then you yeah, can sever exactly. that one away from the other ones. There might be reasons to do that. Well, and, and I mean, that has happened in a case that I had. Yeah, where, you know, again, multiple defendant gang case, and we had a couple of people who asked for a speedy trial. And we're like, okay, great. We'll sever out your case, be ready for the jury next week. And, <laughs> and they funny. weren't as speedy as that, apparently. So <laughs> they I didn't don't want know. that speed. Didn't want that much speed on it. Yeah. So, so but, there are cases where a prosecutor can ask. So we've got sua sponte, the judge can do it. We've, right. we've got cases where the prosecutor can ask and they, on appeal, they said there was no error. Really, what could you complain about? You got a separate trial. Yeah, really. That seems pretty clean. But what's the most common way, Tane, this comes up? Yeah, the most common way that you get to this is by a written motion filed in the case by one or more of the defendants requesting to have his or her trial sever from, severed from the other co-defendants. Once that severance motion has been filed, it is the duty of the party requesting severance to establish that not granting severance will result in a denial of due process. Now, that seems like a pretty high standard, Wade. Yeah, denial of due, pro- de- denial of due process is a pretty high standard that it's hard to meet, and I think that's intentional. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, I mean, again, where you're taking a- an issue that's generally discretionary with the trial court, you're going to have to give the, the the appellate court some sort of high bar, high standard to go by if they're going to reverse something on that. So uh, if a defendant removes to sever his or her trial from that of the co-defendant, the trial court has been directed to hear argument on the motion with some questions in mind, right, Wade? Some yep. things to consider. There are three really primary questions. And to be fair, before we before we read the list, a yes answer to any of these does not necessarily mean you have to sever, but these are the three things you're supposed to consider among anything else that might be relevant. So what does that mean to us, Wade? Well, when you're when you're making your ruling on this, you might want to say, and oh, by the way, I considered the following three things. Yep. So the first question, will the number of defendants create confusion of the evidence and law applicable to each of the individual defendants? Number two, is there a danger that evidence admissible against one defendant will be considered against another defendant despite the admonitory, 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 admonitory precautions of the court? The and that's a, that's a big one. That's a tough one. We'll get into that in a minute. And then number three, are the defenses of the defendants antagonistic to each other or to each other's rights? So the as we've said the courts the trial court's decision on whether to grant or deny severance is discretionary which means on appeal they're reviewing for an abuse of discretion again pretty high standard and i, I guess it could be reversed but i haven't seen many reversals in the cases that we looked up right so these three questions um confusion evidence admission and antagonism of defendant defenses are the three driving questions behind the trial judge's decision whether or not to grant severance to any moving defendant. Now, in order for a defendant to prevail in his or her motion, Wade, I know there's been some guidance that's been given to the trial court. There is. And let me read a quote. It is not enough for the defendant to show that he or she would have a better chance of acquittal at a a separate trial or that the evidence against one co-defendant is stronger. 
Rather, the defendant must show clearly that a joint trial will prejudice his or her defense, resulting in a denial of due process. There's that phrase again. That's right. One of the Georgia cases which has been referenced uh, involving RICO charges, which again is where you get some of these really big multi-defendant cases, but one of the cases involving RICO charges involved what is involved what has become known as the school cheating case or the the APS trial. Uh, there were 35 total defendants, and I think ultimately 11 of them actually went to trial together uh, without their cases being severed. At least that's what the appellate records show. One of the defendants in that case appealed her conviction, including the including in the appeal the alleged error for not the trial court not granting severance. The appellate court began by noting that the defendant could not point to any evidence that was ultimately ultimately introduced that would not have been admissible against her, like in a separate trial. That's right. Even the appellate court uh, noted acknowledged that the trial court. Um, or I'm sorry, that the original trial was very long and involved multiple defendants, but that fact alone doesn't demand severance. They just re-emphasized that particular point. In that case, the APS case, there were also allegedly antagonistic defenses presented by different defendants. And this antagonistic defense argument is pretty common, isn't it, Tay? I mean, don't you hear that pretty regularly when you have a multi-defendant case? Sure. I mean, they frequently are, you know, it's like, I didn't do it. Some other, somebody else did it. Must have been and one of those guys. It might be the guy sitting, sitting right here. Yeah, must be that guy sitting one seat over from me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the mere fact that there are antagonistic defenses uh, presented, the court said, is not enough in and of itself to require severance. Rather, the defendant must also demonstrate that he was harmed by the failure to sever. In other words, that standard's higher than just saying, there were antagonistic defenses. Boom, I'm done. It's no, there's got to be some harm that results from them being able to be presented in the same case. Consider like, for example, a gang murder case, Tane, and you've had some of those, I think. Yeah. Multiple defendants on trial, each of them blaming each other as being the shooter. One defendant requests severance and that gets denied. And on appeal, and this was an example, he, he stressed the antagonistic defenses argument in fact, he suggested that because the defenses of the different defendants each blamed one another, they were not only antagonistic, they were, and this was something adopted by the um, appellate lawyer, they were, quote, mutually exclusive, end quote, meaning that they were, they could not have coexisted. Right. And the appellate courts, tell the, tell the folks what the appellate court said to that. Yeah, the, the appellate court said... Whether defenses are merely antagonistic or mutually exclusive from one another, that is a distinction without a difference under our law, and severance is not required. In other words, it's kind of one of those things a jury has to sift out in, in every case. You know, even if you have multiple defenses, or let's be honest, we've had I've had single defendant cases where mutually exclusive defenses were presented. I wasn't there, but if I was there, it I wasn't didn't mean me. To. Right? Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to discuss jury charges as a topic here in a little while, but the appellate courts have noted that where the jury is properly instructed on concepts such as mere presence or mere association and parties to a crime, those, those basic jury charges, any antagonism between those defenses does not demand severance. Yeah, I, I love how our appellate courts occasionally send out little hints that are somewhat tangential to the issues being discussed but which give trial judges and lawyers insight into collateral things that should be done in the type of situation being discussed. You know, like when discussing whether severance should have been granted, 
they list a few jury charges that were given in that case that helped support the decision made by the trial judge. And just as an aside here, Wade, those three that uh, that they just you know threw out there as some helpful hints, those were pretty much standard for me to give in in, in essentially every defense or uh, criminal case. How about you? Yeah, same here. I mean, I wouldn't give parties to a crime usually in a single defendant case, but usually in most multi-defendant cases, they would all be given. And speaking on behalf of judges everywhere, even retired judges, we appreciate the heads up. Amen, brother. Thanks so for the heads up. <laughs> there are times when a defendant seeking severance tain will argue that they can't call the co-defendant as a witness, and that means we should sever the case. Now, Tane, do a little analysis for us. Yeah, I mean, let's stop and, and look at that for a minute. Even if the defendant was granted a separate trial, he or she could not call the co-defendant because that co-defendant would still have a Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. So nothing's really changed there. That's that's kind of a non-starter argument, right? That is. And, and I will see lawyers vigorously argue this, and then you go, yeah, but even if I granted what you wanted, you, you don't have... This doesn't remedy that problem. Yeah, it just changes nothing. So if we recap the whole issue of severance right quick, Tane, it's discretionary with the, with the trial judge, and the judge should answer those three questions, those being confusion of the issues, evidence admissible against some but not all defendants, and whether there are antagonistic defenses. But even a yes answer to all three questions doesn't demand severance. Right. Just go through the analysis, folks. Make sure you go through the analysis. So let's turn to a new topic, Tane. Yeah, uh, every time I, every time I hear this topic, I think of my friend, Judge Eric Bruton, state court of Cobb County. And even though he spells his name a different way, I somehow feel like he was probably involved in this case. You mean like Bruton? Yeah. Judge Bruton. Well, so everybody will tell you, Hey, there's a Bruton problem. And Tane, this is sort of a pet peeve that you and I have. We talk about it at NJO every year. Right. About all the slang that gets used. Sure. Yeah. We love to throw out case names so that other people who don't know anything about the case will go, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then you go, you know, a Bruton problem, you know, like when you have co-defendants and then they go, oh, well, I know about the co-defendant testimony problem. I just don't know that it's called a Bruton problem. That happens all the time. Love so that. Georgia law is replete with jargon, acronyms, shorthand references to cases that are landmark cases for the whole concept. And we're going to talk about a few of those today. Trials of co-defendants frequently involve one of those shorthand references, Tane, a Bruton problem. Right. So before we start talking about the law, let's let's make sure everybody knows what a Bruton problem is. Yeah, let's all get on the same page. So where co-defendants are facing trial and one or several co-defendants make some kind of a custodial statement that implicates one or more of the co-defendants, a real legal conundrum of constitutional proportions arises. And let's think about this. It all has to do with right to confront witnesses versus Fifth Amendment right not to testify. So talk about that a little bit, Wade. So all criminal defendants have a Sixth Amendment right to confront confront witnesses. You may remember, and I hate to do a callback to prior episodes of the Good Judgment podcast, but that's a Crawford problem. Oh, that's another one of those jargon problem. <laughs> Jeez. The Crawford. Crawford rule we discussed extensively in prior episodes. Well, it, it arises here too. And just to be clear, Crawford says you have a right to confront all witnesses called against you, not just those who accuse you, but everybody who, who presents in your trial. And when you allow hearsay evidence in, you potentially are violating the Sixth Amendment. Forget the hearsay problem. Crawford sort of arises in criminal cases, only in criminal cases. And it's it usually related to an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. Right. So 
If the co-defendant's custodial statement is presented to the jury, the remaining co-defendants have no ability to force the co-defendant who made the statement to testify. Therefore, under the Bruton decision, the co-defendant who did not make the custodial statement will ask the trial court to exclude the statement as being violative of his or her Sixth Amendment confrontation rights. In other words, if you present this video or written statement that implicates me, I can't go in and cross that because it's a video or written statement. And then obviously the other party may never testify at trial. And even if the other party's sitting there, th their objection can't be to Bruton. Their objection may be that it's an improper confession or whatever, but they can't complain about their own statements from a hearsay or Crawford perspective. So now we've got a co-defendant seeking to exclude the statement of another party, which usually doesn't happen, but it can happen all the time in co-defendant cases, multiple co-defendant cases. That's right. So the cases involving and interpreting Bruton seem, well, inconsistent at times. I know you're shocked, which makes the identification of black letter law on the topic of Bruton here a little difficult. But there have been some recent decisions, some as recent as this week, that we are cited in the um, in the outline that hopefully help clear up some of these things. So yeah, we got we some got some hot, hot law. law, hot law, hot law in the outline. Yeah, the Georgia Supreme Court's noted some of those uh, appellate decisions and and recently noted that the historical solution to a Bruton problem, which is what we're going to call it, uh, was to use a limiting instruction to tell the jury that the statement is only admissible against the maker of the statement. And I think we all, um, what's the right word, question just how effective limiting instructions are. Here and at other times when we're asked to make limiting instructions, we wonder if the jury understands and they can compartmentalize that. But that is what the U.S. Supreme Court has said is a solution, or at least a potential solution to Bruton problems. But the Georgia Supreme Court said, mm, not so fast. What did they say? Yeah, the Georgia Supreme Court addressed this topic just recently and said giving a limiting instruction as a, quote, cure to a Bruton problem is, quote, not quite as easy as suggested by the U.S. Supreme Court. Really? You think? Yeah, that's a very polite way to do that. That is. George we differ slightly from their yeah. uh, discussion. Au contraire. <laughs> um, Georgia law has consistently held that Bruton excludes only the statement of a non-testifying co-defendant. That standing alone directly inculpates the defendant. But not an out-of-court statement that does not incriminate the defendant unless it is linked with other evidence at trial. So in other words, there, there are some basic problems or requirements before a statement can potentially pose a Bruton problem, right, Tane? Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking, when we're quoting the Supreme Court, is there any way we can get like some reverential background music, like some Gregorian chant or some, or, you know, or really, some kind of you know, like choir. Hallelujah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the hallelujah chorus or something we'll like that. We'll have to work on that. We'll, we'll see what we can do. Yeah. We'll fix that in the mix, Stephen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. 
We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. The court said the statement made by co-defendant standing alone must clearly inculpate the defendant. That was that was kind of their blanket statement with regard to this. If a juror can eventually put together that the evidence of, quote, another person or another individual, end quote, which is like how the, the statement is usually redacted, uh, being referenced is actually defendant number two. That's not a Bruton problem. A Bruton problem is when the statement clearly inculpates defendant number two, I don't know, by name or nickname. That's a problem. It's a problem for defendant two, but it's not a problem for Bruton. (laughs) Yeah, it is definitely a problem for for defendant number two. So, so, so look, because this is a mistake that that's replete through all of these cases, redacting the statement of the co-defendant to remove any reference to another co-defendant by name, nickname, or et cetera, Cures a Bruton problem, maybe, but but yeah. the redaction must remove any reference to another co-defendant by name, nickname, or in any other manner other than another, quote unquote, another individual or a similar non-identifying pronoun. Uh, the statement can be admitted without violating Bruton. In other words, if there's a way that you can redact the statement that takes out essentially any other reference to the co-defendant whatsoever other than that there was some other individual who might have been responsible for this you might be able to fix it with redaction i'm just telling you be careful based on the case law it is blatantly insufficient for the redaction to replace the name of the co-defendant with something like a blank space or deleted i mean i just want to know what the thought process was here judge we can fix this problem we'll just put a blank there so me and Blank space went to the store. I mean, you know, that's just I don't know. In in, Sup- in his, you know, red nineteen sixty seven, uh, yeah. you know, Camaro and yeah, whatever. You used to the have US one of those, Supreme didn't you, Wayne? I had a sixty eight. Sixty eight. Okay. That was my daughter's last year in college. Yeah. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court found that replacing the name of the co-defendant with a blank space or the word deleted or any other similar attempts at redaction does not cure a Bruton problem. No, I don't no know why that makes there. me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> they were like blank space, blank there. Yeah, put a blank. <laughs> Nobody ever figure that out. No, but it's if the a, statement, if the statement cannot be redacted, Tane, in a manner that removes any identifying references to a particular co-defendant, it simply can't be admitted. Right. Um, we all realize that the underlying premise of Bruton is that the defendant who made the statement does not testify, thereby creating a Sixth Amendment confrontation problem. So at the pretrial hearing, this is where hopefully all of this will come out and not at trial. uh, The defendant who made the statement assures the court that he will be testifying at trial. No Bruton problem, right? I mean, if he says at pretrial, hey, just don't worry about it. I'm going to testify and they're going to get a chance to 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 cross examine me. That that fixes it, right, Wade? Wrong. False. Do that Nana song. That sound you make. Yep, that one. That promise or guarantee that the maker will testify at trial cannot be relied upon here. And it's pretty obvious why. 
the defendant can change his or her mind about testifying up until the time comes for them to testify. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason we have to read those questions at trial and not, you know, just before trial and ask them when the, whether they're going to testify. Yeah, so, now you're stuck with it. Yeah, so so dealing with a Bruton issue, the trial judge must assume that the maker of the statement will not testify. In other words, will exercise their Fifth Amendment right not to testify. So if at trial the maker of the statement actually testifies, then most of the problems created by Bruton are cured. But the trial judge cannot operate under a presumption that the maker of the statement will testify because, as we said, they have the right to change their mind. There are times that the redaction effort leaves the underlying statement nonsensical or worthless. It just doesn't even make any sense if you keep redacting another person, another person, another person. In fairness, a lot of those statements are nonsensical and worthless, even without redactions. But still, (laughs) let's assume that you're redacting them and it changes the content. Under that scenario, the ju- the judge can e- can exclude the resulting statement after all the redactions, just being as not probative of anything. Yeah. Now, remember when we promised to revisit the issue of a limiting instruction? Well, Wade, knock this one out of the park, buddy. It is of vital importance, vital importance that the statement be redacted and that the jury receive a limiting instruction when dealing with the Bruton problem. The limiting instruction. I always hate it when they tell you to give a limiting instruction and don't tell you what it's supposed to say. Right. <laughs> yeah. Give a limiting instruction. Okay. Okay. What am I? I limit you. I bless you and limit li- you. <laughs> I limit <laughs> thee. I limit thee. I limit <laughs> thee. <laughs> so the limiting instruction must tell the jury that the pretrial custodial, custodial statement can be considered only against the maker of the statement and not against any of the other defendants. Yeah. So maybe highlight that right there, folks, in your notes, because when that comes up, there's part of your limiting instruction right there. And failure to give that limiting instruction, Tane, is likely reversible error. We've got some case sites on that. <laughs> so let's talk about the co-conspirator statement. And I'm, I'm calling an exclusion from here, definition of hearsay. A lot of people call an exception. Loyal listeners, Tane, will recall that we've talked about evidence a lot during prior episodes. By request. Yes. One of the places we have spent a great deal of time here on the Good Judgment Podcast, and when we teach in other scenarios, Tane, and each of us do, is hearsay. Yeah. (laughs) Look, folks, this is one of my favorite quotes, and I believe this. If you learn the hearsay rule, you will be far ahead of most of the other lawyers and judges who are out there practicing. It's just just a a truism. And hearsay is not... When we say understand the hearsay rule, we don't mean just understand the definition of hearsay, an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted. It requires you to understand that that the hearsay rule excludes hearsay, things that are defined as hearsay. And under the hearsay rule, Rule 801, 24-8-801. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. They define a few types of statements that normally would fall within that definition, Tane, but which are excluded from the definition, all in 801. And then it provides for exceptions to the hearsay rule, that is, if the statement actually qualifies as hearsay, under 803 and 804. So if you see something and it's cited as 801, that's an exclusion from the hearsay rule. If you see something cited as 803 or 804, that's an exception to the hearsay rule. But if you call those exclusions exceptions, we're going to give you grace here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Just know them. Yeah, just know know them. In this episode, so we're not going to get all in the nuts and bolts taint again on hearsay because we've done that a few times. And understand 
that there is one topic, I guess, within the larger umbrella of hearsay that bears discussion here, and that's the co-conspirator statement rule. So tell the folks that's about right. the co-conspirator statement rule. Well, first, I'm going to tell you where to find it because it's buried deep in 801. It is at OCGA section 24-8-801-D2E. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. Lots I mean, wings. angels are getting their wings today. So that is known, as we said, as the co-conspirator exclusion or exception to the hearsay rule. It, 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 as we said, not not really an exception. The, it's an exclusion to the definition, the very definition of hearsay. Right. But everybody calls it an exception. Like, like we said, if you do either one, you'll get some partial credit here on the test. Well, yeah, we'll give you partial credit. So the biggest point you need to know about the co-conspirator exclusion and exception is that the statement of a co-conspirator must be made, quote, in furtherance of the conspiracy. That's a key defining point as to whether or not it falls within the exclusion. So that is somewhat of a change, Tane, from prior law. That this whole furtherance of conspiracy thing, it, it's going to become really important right here. And this is going to lead us to one of my favorite phrases in appellate law in Georgia. And, and we'll talk about that in just a second. While the rule specifically notes that statements are admissible even during the concealment phase of the conspiracy, the underlying premise is that each co-conspirator is liable, I guess, for lack of a better word, for the statements of the other co-conspirators provided... The speaking co-conspirator is making a statement in furtherance of their joint venture. You know, it's kind of like the whole agency admission thing, Tane, in under the law where you can the the everybody in the the group is responsible for your statements, provided you're making a statement within the scope of your agency. For example, I, I know Millich uses an example of a um, peanut vendor at, at the Brave Stadium can't be making statements for what the Braves upper brass is going to do in trade negotiations. I mean, he can have an idea about that, but that's not an agency admission. Kind of the same thing here. If the co-conspirator is, is acting within his role or whatever and furthering the conspiracy, then it qualifies as a co-conspirator statement. All the different co-conspirators are liable for that statement. Yeah, they come from the same concept, basically. It's just in a different context. Ms. So, Tane, here's, let's, let's deal with the question. Everybody says, nobody's charged with a conspiracy. They say it just <laughs> like that, too. But no conspiracy is in the indictment, Judge. Yeah, it, 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 it doesn't matter. That doesn't, it doesn't matter if somebody is charged with conspiracy. You just have to consider whether or not they're jointly involved uh, in, in the uh, conduct of a particular crime. So, Tane, now we're going to come to what I have considered one of those classic terms rooted deeply in Georgia law. The appellate cases use it all the time. Tell the folks what is not included in a co-conspirator statement. Yeah, it makes me hungry every time I say this. The spill the beans uh, category of of uh, statements by co-conspirators. You mean the pillow talk with the uh, girlfriend statement that says, honey, I just got to tell you, we shot that dude. Yeah, <laughs> I got to, I got to, you know, just unburdened my heart, right? Wasn't that a Whitney Houston song? No, that was Unchained My Heart. 
I don't okay. Know. Wow. That was wow. hard to get there. Sorry. So spill yeah. the beans. If the statement merely spills the beans about criminal activity, that's not a co-conspirator statement. That's not furthering anything. And usually right. that arises when, I don't know, law enforcement's involved. <laughs> There's really not any, you're not furthering conspiracy when you tell law enforcement what happened and who did what to who. In fact, you're doing the opposite. <laughs> yeah. You're really screwing up the conspiracy if you're spilling the beans. That, that's That's sort of counterproductive to the conspiracy. Um, so how does this hearsay issue, Tane, fit in with Bruton and Crawford and all this other stuff we've been talking about? Well, as with most pl- things here on the Good Judgment podcast, the only way to answer that question is the long way around. So bear with us as we give you a, a couple of examples that I think will help uh, to explain this. So so the first example is this. A co-defendant makes a statement to his girlfriend that he and the co-defendant, quote, hit a lick last night. Uh, robbing a man, and that when the man resisted, the co-defendant shot him, and then they fled. Second example that is in contrast, the co-defendant makes the exact same statement. They hit a leg, robbed a man, shot him, but makes that statement to a law enforcement officer during a custodial interrogation. Yeah, under so that un- first un- example, yeah. Yeah, so under the first example, the scenario with the girlfriend, except under strange facts, the statement is really a quote unquote spilling of the beans, and it's not something that furthers the conspiracy. I mean, that makes sense, right? I'm just I'm just telling my boo that I did something bad, and uh, you know I don't want her to think badly I of wanna, me. Do me a favor, yeah. Next time you call Sherry Kell your boo, oh yeah, she's my boo. Yeah, yeah. thirty years yeah. now, man, thirty plus. Hey, girl, mm-hmm. love you. She's your boo. Mean it. Get out of here. That's my boo. Come on. So, what is it if it's not a co-conspirator statement? Type? So it, it's. It is hearsay, and there's no exception that would allow it. Um, it. It also poses, just as a side note, a Crawford problem that we just talked about a minute ago, because the maker of the statement, the co-defendant, can't be compelled to testify, right? So both of those are, are potential problems and issues there. So under the second example, that same statement made to law enforcement, the statement, I guess, gets around hearsay because it's a confession by the person making the statement, but his confession also implicates another co-defendant. And while you may not have a quote-unquote hearsay problem, you do have a Bruton problem and a Crawford problem, therefore excluding that statement. That second statement can only be admitted at the joint trial of the two defendants, I guess. If one, the statement was redacted to remove any reference to the co-defendant other than another individual, and it still makes some kind of sense. And two, a limiting instruction is given to ensure that the jury understands the statement is only to be considered against the maker of the statement and not any other co-defendant. And wait, I want to go off just for a second. I won't promise not to make this long, but you read more of these cases than I did. I read the ones you sent me. That's uh, shocking. Yeah, I know. Shocking, right? But, but when they talk about redacting a statement, let's make sure that folks understand they don't mean putting different words into the statement, right? Because I haven't seen an example. I've seen examples where they took out entire portions of it, which is what we generally think of as redacting, or they struck out somebody's name or you something mean they don't like get that. an actor to do the, the defendant's voice and yeah, say another right. individual? Well, that's what I mean. Like, or, or if it's I, I think, I think it, there have been occasions when they have done exactly that, but I... I, I would suggest to you that there is a whole lot of cases that say any reference to the mere existence of the defendant makes it not admissible. So in all candor, you've got to decide whether the redaction really is fair. 
this most recent case, I think this is a an insertion of the phrase another individual where he said John John or whatever he said to reference the co-defendant. But I to in in my opinion, it's much cleaner and much easier. If you're gonna do redaction, redu to redact any reference to to another individual. Now, if he says they, we, I mean, I'd leave all that in because that they and we could be anybody. But right. anything that says, you know, the tall guy with long hair and, and dreads, I mean, I don't, all that's got to come out. Right. And I don't know how you redact a statement. Frankly, I don't know how you redact a statement that makes it where it's not obviously pointing to the only other person sitting in the room. Now, if it's a gang case and there are multiple defendants, I think the cases have said, look, it could have been any of these people. So the fact that he was really referencing defendant two, it could have been referencing defendant seven or somebody not in the courtroom. It's much better. But when there's only clearly two actors, I think you've got to redact pretty much everything, anything that shows that other person existed. Until it becomes nonsensical and unhelpful, right? And then That's we move the on to which something you else. Yeah, then, yeah. And then you do it because it, yeah, it's not helpful. Well, so, wait, Tane, let's wanna, stop here. Yeah, let's stop let's here. Let's stop and, here for the first part of this episode. That way we don't make these too long. And, well, I guess that's arguable by itself. But uh, we will discuss other issues dealing with the multi-defendant case in this companion episode, part two, part deux. Deux, part deux. And spe specifically including logistics relating to a multi-defendant trial and issues with jury selection, closing argument, and jury charges. Yeah, so folks, remember the disclaimer that we gave you at the beginning of our case, uh, I'm sorry, at the beginning of our episode, that nothing we've said today is designed to address any particular pending cases anywhere on the planet. It never is. I mean, we're here to give you general advice of, of helpful content uh, that we think will be helpful. Now, I, you know, new cases arise that sparks us to, to uh, you know, do an episode. The Supreme Court will come out with a decision that Gives us new material to deal with. We do that all the time, but uh, we're not uh, we're not trying to address anything particular. Um, what do they do if they have some uh, some you know uh, topics that they'd like for us to address? Well, you can send us your thoughts and ideas and and helpful commentary at goodjudgepod at gmail .com. Even though we don't always respond, we always see them. That's right. And don't forget, this episode's outline will be available on goodjudgepod.com, our uh, webpage. So. Wait, am I up for the music trivia for today? Dun, dun, dun. Time. This is awesome. All right. Music trivia for today. Let's step Have back in time. Have you read this time. yet? I did not. I didn't read this on purpose. Okay, go. All right. Let's step back in time to the man, the myth, the legend, Elvis Presley. Okay. It's crazy you're doing this. September 21st, I am going to be participating in a Cobb Bar event fundraiser because I can do that now because I'm retired. Um, and it is an Elvis impersonator contest. And yes, I will be impersonating Elvis Presley at this event on September the 21st in Cobb County. So anyway, the man, the myth, the legend, Elvis Aaron Presley. He was born in 1935, as we all know, in Tupelo, Mississippi. His first single released was a song called That's All Right, which is an awesome song. Do you know, do you folks out there in radio podcast land uh not radio it's the internet everything's the internet uh do you know which of his monster hits was his first number one on the billboard charts let's think about that for a minute do you give up all right let's think about it uh heartbreak hotel i'm not looking wade heartbreak hotel i don't think it was it blue suede shoes 
I don't think so. If I had to guess, I would guess Hound Dog. That would be my guess. So now read so, the answer. So let me read the answer here. Um, Elvis made his film debut in 1950. No, no, no. What was the what was the number one first number one? His first number one of the Billboard charge was Heartbreak Hotel. I was wrong. I was wrong. You were wrong. You were right to be wrong. I was right to, to be, be wrong. Right yeah. Um, now let's see. Elvis made his film debut in 1956. Do you know the name of the film? I, I'm I'm pretty sure I know this one. Well, you you got to read the hint. Give oh, the hint. hint. Oh, I'm sorry. I cover. I was trying not to look. It's not the same name as his first number one, but it is the same name as one of his famous songs. I, I'm going to guess Jailhouse Rock. It says, Love Me Tender. Oh, so wrong on that. All right, I'm covering up. But Elvis's highest grossing film was Viva Las Vegas. Well, rightly so. Fantastic film. Don't know why it didn't win an Academy Award. Um, maybe it's because same of who is- Purple Rain didn't. <laughs> I can't believe that one didn't win. <laughs> it should have won more. Uh, maybe that's because of who his co-star was in the film Love Me Tender, though. Do you know who his co-star was in uh, Viva Las Vegas? No? And Margaret. 100%, that's what it was. Um, folks, we are just full of useless information here on the Good Judgment Podcast, but we hope you enjoy it nevertheless. Thanks, folks. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to add it out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.